the seventh chapter of Romans. Um, I'm just going to read the first 13 verses this week. I actually am up here for two weeks on this. This could clearly take more than every chapter could, right? So, Romans chapter 7, and we'll take the first 13 verses today. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And she marries. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin dies. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here's a little quote to sort of help us understand where we are without Christ the state that we're born into is a quote we were born into a covenant with the very enemy of God we were born into a covenant with the very enemy we had a covenant with Satan so to speak a covenant with death a covenant with sin that's the covenant we were born into our problem primarily is a problem of relationship related to married to with the wrong one <laughs> but it's been a while since we've been in Rome it's been a few weeks we had Alex teaching last week the week before that was Christmas so let's just a little review of the first six chapters very briefly Romans chapter 1 Paul introduces the source the work and the necessity for the gospel of God Romans chapter 2 to 3 dear Jew you also need the gospel because Jews need to be delivered from the coming judgment for Jews every bit under the wrath of God as much as Gentiles your physical circumcision is not all you make it out to be. Righteousness, there's a righteousness of God apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it. You might say there's a righteousness of God that can only take part apart from the law, though the law and the prophets have bore witness to it. In introduction uh, in, the, in the third chapter to justification by faith. Then in the fourth chapter, we get Abraham as the example of what it means to be in a right relationship with God. Of what it means to be the recipient of a covenant of God. Of the goodness of God. Of the grace of God. Of the nothing motivates me but my selfness of God. He believed God 
and therefore he was deemed to be in a right relationship with God. That is to say, he was, he was rec- it was reckoned to him as righteousness. By trusting God, he demonstrated that he was in a right relationship with him. Abraham had God-glorifying faith, despite what was true about his body in Sarah's womb. And we had some discussion, recall, at that time. Is, is that God-glorifying faith referring to the moment where we first read that Abraham faith, had faith? Or when, when, when he offered his son on Moriah? We can sort of look at that either way. This happened before circumcision. And this was because, by the way, the, the deadness of Sarah's body, really, for all practical purposes, the deadness of Abraham's body, although as far as uh, sexual reproduction was concerned, he was still apt. This all happened before circumcision. This comes up in Galatians, by the way. All of this happened in, also in Romans, but, but very specifically in Galatians. The circumcision came after <clears throat> so we see here the establishment of covenant of another covenant right? because we've seen covenants in scripture already but we have a very important covenant here the Abrahamic covenant which we see fulfilled in Christ and we see that same righteousness is credited to us who believe in the resurrected Jesus to believe in the resurrected Christ to trust him to follow him is to be considered in a right relationship with God if you are that person you are in a right relationship with God this morning you are in covenant with Him. Amen. In Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God. We have hope, and we can expect suffering. We were once in Adam. We are now in Christ. At some point, we were, we were demonstrating solidarity either in Adam or in Christ. That's all there is. That's all there is in life. That's all there is in this, in this world. Solidarity with one or the other, either with, either with Adam or with Christ. Romans chapter 6, we saw that the Roman believers, both Jew and Gentile, have been united with Christ in His death. And so therefore, we'll also be united with Him in His res- resurrection. We are united with Him in His resurrection. And the, the fullness of that yet to come when we have our resurrected uh, physical bodies and completely, I call them resurrected mind. And there's an exhortation to the church to not let sin reign. Do not let sin reign in your members. Um, I'll bring up a few things in a, in, a, in a few moments about some of the particulars that come up in Romans that present some issue as to what the word means. But members doesn't always just mean, in fact, probably least frequently means parts of our own body. Okay, because first and foremost, Paul's letters are corporate. Alex touched on that last week as well. And of course, we're individuals, right? But Paul uses members by and large to refer to members of the church, parts of the church, parts of the body of Christ. <laughs> In some instances, and certainly in some instances, it's applicable to talk about not using our, our body for sin. But Paul and the Old Testament people were not nearly as individually oriented as Americans and European people are. We are so stuck on self. We are so stuck on the individual. I mean, we are in the age of the selfie. Right? An Old Testament Jew would have nothing to do with a selfie. He, would probably, he or she would find that morally repugnant we are now slaves or servants of righteousness as opposed to slaves or servants to sin and death in a sense the church's experience is like Israel's after they were set free from bondage to Pharaoh to go and serve and worship God so now the church is set free from bondage to sin so that we also may serve God some comments throughout chapter 1 through verse 6 Paul has said about the law 
This is very important. Some of the things that Paul has said about the law. In Romans 3.19, we see that the law condemns the sinner. In Romans 3.20, we see that the law brings knowledge of or reveals sin. Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. Romans 5.20, the law increases the trespass. Now, Romans 7, Paul is dealing with the law as it relates to sin and the sinner. Uh, verses 1 through 13 gives us some additional emphasis and some specificity on that as to just what that relationship is, that relationship to the law and sin, the law and sinner. The law exposes sin, the law provokes sin, and the law condemns sin. So we have all this discussion that is going on and has been going on. And we have to think of how devastating this must have been. <clears throat> how this must have sounded to the Jewish part of this church those which had come out of Judaism, that had grown up in, that were exposed to, that had their whole life and culture oriented around Judaism because it was oriented before Christ around the law. I mean, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law was a foundation, it was a foundational part of the Old Covenant. It, it was the human part, in a way, uh, things they had to keep of the Old Covenant. And, but now, of course, that covenant is gone. But to, imagine to all these things that they're hearing about the law, Right? Must have sounded like. It'd be like someone saying, you know, you know, <laughs> when I went to when I went to high school, um, a couple two, three years ago, Tammy, there was uh the, the my my black brothers and friends used to they used to rank on one another's maternal heritage. So it was not uncommon for them at all to say something about somebody else's mother. Okay? And in black culture, that was just something that they did constantly. Your mother this, your mother that. Well, you know, to, to, to anyone. And why was that the, the ultimate, the penultimate insult? Because it's because of the closeness of mothers uh, to their sons in, in parts of that culture. This is the equivalent of saying something about your mother. To the Jews, this was the law. You're saying these things about Paul. Are you serious? You're saying all these sort of things about the law that almost sound disparaging. <laughs> So Paul, and Paul is a master pastor and, and a master of everything, you know. God really gifted Paul, obviously. So he's got, he's got some work to do. But the ministry of the law has passed. The ministry of the Spirit is now here. Okay, that be, that, whoever has this lesson after me in two weeks will be picking up in Romans chapter 8, where we begin to see the ministry of the Spirit in profound ways, in ways that the law could never do. Okay, so what a chapter this chapter Romans seven sevens is. It's it's the most important chapter in the Bible, along with all the other most important chapters in the Bible. <laughs> How often do we hear that? Well, this one is also. <laughs> and if you have any familiarity or any history with this chapter, you know its history of scholarly and academic controversy. Right? It is just rife with it. And so, I mean, this is probably in in, in some ways as intercollegiately, intramurally, within the body, problematic as, you know, how do you interpretate, uh, how do you interpret the Genesis text with respect to creation? Okay? It, it's got almost the same sorts of tension as old earth, young earth. Or, you know, what are some of the other, what are some of the other big sort of things in the body? Again, what's our, some of our intramural, intramural in-house debates? Continuity of the covenants? Yeah, I'm sorry? Continuity of the covenant. Continuity of the, yeah, that's a big thing, right? Whether 
so and, and so we're considered a new covenant church and we, we embrace for the most part new covenant theology which is not the same as covenant theology which is not the same as classical reform 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith but we don't hold to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, right? We go back a little bit, don't we, yeah, to the 1649? Yeah, flaws in it. Yeah, so, and those flaws would be flaws that say, and without getting into that, I'm just sort of touching on things. Sabbath-keeping? Yeah, Sabbath-keeping, those kinds of Infant things, right? baptism, maybe? I mean, even, even Spurgeon at one point accused unbelievers of being Sabbath-breakers. No, in the ultimate sense they are, if you think of Christ fulfilling the Sabbath, yeah. but in a certain sense... You know, so right, so that's one of them, right? That Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, which of course is unbiblical. Um, <coughs> or should I say, the argument for it in Scripture pales in comparison to the argument against that. So that there are a lot of these sorts of things. So again, it's it, it's it's the most difficult chapter in the Bible, along with all the other most difficult chapters in the Bible. We're playing with some, we're we're we're, we're into some real serious stuff here. Paul, is he describing a pre-conversion experience? Or is this the experience of all genuine believers? That's, that's basically 14 to 25. That's next week. Uh, that's when you want to wear your body armor. It's next week. Is Paul talking about himself? Again, think of the... I just referred to a few moments ago with the discussion of the individual versus Paul writing to the corporate body. Is he speaking sort of as Adam? Is he speaking as Israel? Or is he giving sort of the universal experience of all people? <coughs> we'll look at these things. Law, also in Romans chapter 7 and other places, is used in a few different ways. It's typically the Mosaic law that's being referred to, but sometimes it's law being referred to as an operative principle. Right, so like you have the law of gravity, right? Uh, in this case, you have the law of marriage, or the law of the husband, quite literally, as it's called. So the law is used in different ways, although mostly, most of the time in Romans, we're talking about the Mosaic law. In other places of Scripture, Paul's writings, we talk about the law of Christ. Okay. So far, so good. These are some of the things that are in the back of people's minds, whether you're aware of it or not. Right. This is sort of what I call the tacit awareness of what we have and what we bring to Scripture. Things that we already believe about all these particulars. Keep in mind, you always bring those to a text. And we have to be as open as possible to the text. We have to be willing to sometimes, you know, turn off the switch in our mind a little bit and yet stay engaged at the same time. It's not simple. Nor should it be. So, in chapter 7, verse 6, just quickly want to mention this before we dig in. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the code. That is the main point of the chapter. And we'll execute that when we get to it. We need to do what comes before. So, in verses 1 to 2, Paul says, Do you not, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law? Well, what law is he talking about here? Well, I think he certainly could be referring to law in a number of ways. Jewish law. Roman law? I mean, both have laws regarding marriage, or, or literally, is the, the, the text is the law of the husband. See, laws pertaining to what goes on, to what a marriage is. Okay? And Paul says, in, in, for the Jews, of course, marriage would be codified in the, in the Mosaic law as well. So, you kind of have both of those going on. But remember, Gentiles were never under Mosaic law. Never. Nor will they be. The key point, though, 
is that the law is only binding while people are alive. It's somewhat commonsensical to, to, to say that, right? To be bound here in the text means to, ha- to have authority over. In Mark, the Gospel of Mark, it's, it's, trans- it's translated to lord it over. Okay? So, whatever law is being referred to here in specific, it no longer applies once there's a death, which is the point, right? So, then verse 3, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So, the marriage certificate lists Gary and Mary. But Mary is now living with Larry. Is she committing adultery? Who said that? What? Yeah. <laughs> not if Gary's dead. If Gary's dead. Sorry, brother. <laughs> I can only come up with Gary, Mary, and Larry. I couldn't think of I couldn't think of any women's name that rhymed with Todd. Happen. You know, I, I couldn't think of anything that rhymed with Todd or you know, you know, uh, you know what I'm saying? Or Ken. You know, there's, there's no women's. I had to come up with three. So you know, <laughs> sorry, Michelle. <laughs> Probably you. I already apologize if you're not Gary. So it's no longer valid. It's no longer binding. It no longer has authority. Okay. And then in verse 4, so he says, Likewise, my brother, my brother, so in keeping with what we just said, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. So in the same way, Jewish hearers who are now in Christ, you have died to the Mosaic law. You're dead to it. When did that happen? Well, Romans 6, 1-4, right? Remember Romans 6, 1-4. Let me read that briefly to you. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to be uh, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, when when will we baptize into Jesus' death? You and I started to have a conversation on this, but we couldn't. When will we baptize into Jesus' death? When we became born again. Okay. Anybody else? Um, When he died and rose. Yeah. Really? I mean, ultimately, when, when he died, in a sense, we were united with him in his death. That was, that was before our water baptism took place. So, uh, it's, it's like, in, we touched on this when you get to talk about it. Like Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, interesting, Paul's writing this letter from Corinth, said that the Jews were baptized into Moses, in the cloud. That's doubly interesting because the cloud is also a form of vapor or water, but, um, but they were baptized into Moses. So remember, to be baptized, uh, the word is immersion. It's, 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 it, originally, the word had to do with the, the, uh, the garment dyeing process, where once you dip that thing in the dye, it was permanently and unchangeably changed. So to be baptized into the death of Christ. Remember how Jesus used baptized in other places too. Are you ready to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? Talk about the baptism of suffering. To be immersed into suffering. To be immersed into Christ. All right, so, um, and then in Romans 6, 6, if we were just to go on another verse, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. We were crucified with Christ. Now, this is very difficult stuff, isn't it? In a way, because in Ephesians, we, it's told that we were once like all the other ones that Paul is talking about. 
all the things he says about uh, people being children of wrath. You know, you were by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Other places where Paul talks about a list of unbelievers, and he says, and such were some of you. So it's true that at one point we were that, and it's also true that in a, in a very real sense, we were, we were baptized into his death when Christ died. That's when the circumcision, the true circumcision took place, of Christ's flesh on the cross. So there's a lot there. But water baptism, of course, symbolizes that true baptism. That's why we use it. That's why we do it. Nothing else sort of captures the essence of that in the way that water baptism does. But that transfer, or that union, that baptism into his death isn't taking its place then. It's not happening then when we're baptized in water. It has to happen before that, obviously. Or we wouldn't be there getting baptized. Okay. So they have died to the law. The Jews have died to the law. Again, remember what this must sound like to the average Jewish ear. And then in uh, verse 4, just as we died to sin, likewise, my brothers, just as we died to sin in, in 6 2, so too have they died to the law. They're dead to sin and they're dead to the law. And that makes a lot of sense because the law and sin are so inextricably linked, as Paul is making the very good point here in Romans chapter 7. The law is no longer binding and Jews are no longer under its authority. We're not going to talk a lot about the place entirely of, of sort of the law in the believer's life. We can touch on that. We don't need to spend a lot of time there. Paul comes as close to antinomianism as one can possibly come, in a sense. It's like it, or sound, it would sound that way, right? Because that's another sort of disagreement among people in Christendom is, you know, what place does the law have? What does the Ten Commandments have in people's life? Well, let's listen carefully to what the Ten Commandments, let's listen carefully to what the purpose of the law is in Romans chapter 7, and then you can sort of extrapolate from that, what place does it not have in my life? In what way, let's ask this, were the Jews under the authority of the law? In what ways? What are some of the ways? Anyone? In what ways were the Jews under under law? We kept all kinds of ceremonies. Yeah. Uh, observed feasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> yep. All, all kind of prohibitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, no working on Saturday. I guess they called Sabbath. Yep. Put to death the adultery. Yeah, death. They agreed right. to it at Mount Sinai. They did. Mount Sinai is very interesting, isn't it? Mount Sinai, I was thinking about this the other day, I don't want to get lost on this, but Mount Sinai is a, very similar to what happened in the Garden of Eden, where a promise was held out, life versus death. Very interesting in that. I'd like to study that some more. Um, well, we know about the sin that the law can no longer do. It can no longer condemn. So it did condemn. It can no longer increase or provoke sin. This is all from the text, as we're going to see. So it did that. It can no longer threaten with death and wrath to those who die to it. Or because of or because or through it, it can no longer curse, because Christ became the curse, and the believer is united to Christ who bore the curse, right? So, in all the ways they were free from it, those are the ways that they were not free from it. Okay, so they were under its jurisdiction, they were under its influence, they were under its, and we'll see, we'll see again some more of what exactly that meant. And why is this so? Why is it necessary that they die? to the law, right? And, and the answer is so that we can belong to another. Just like the, just like the woman who's not going to be an adulteress, right? One author put it, in, in a way, God couldn't commit spiritual adultery. <laughs> the, the, the law and the enemy, they had to die to the law, they had to die to the enemy. In this case, it's, not, it, it's the person themselves that died to it, but that still brings about the end of the authority of the law. 
Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. And specifically? <coughs> dead to sin that we may be yes. alive to Christ. That's right. Thank <coughs> you. So, and, and why? So that we can bear fruit to God. So if dying to the law means we can bear fruit to God, then while under the law, the Jew, and by extension the Gentile, could not bear fruit to God in the way that Paul is talking. Okay? They had to die to the law so that they could bear fruit to God. Yes? If they were able to keep the, the law, they would be glorifying themselves. Quite possibly. I suppose if they could keep the law in some way that... Yeah, because human nature is that way. Right. We are very self sort of applauding and self-accolading and right we're pretty impressed with ourselves usually um, I know I am <laughs> um, that's why we, we, who's in my small who's my small group right we're doing a book on pride uh, or humility actually but hard to talk about humility without seeing its its ugly twin sister pride right um, so to die to the law is to bring about fruit, fruit for God wow Again, imagine being a Jew hearing this. What does it mean to be a fruit to God? Interesting things that write, you know, authors write about this too, but I won't get into it. What, what, what does it mean to bear fruit to God? What is pleasing to Him. Yeah, yeah and what is pleasing to Him? Go ahead. I was going to say not being under obligation when you do it. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Not being under obligation when you do it. I like that very much, yeah. Ultimately, it's the work of the Spirit of God in us. That's why, yes. Oh, absolutely. No question about that. That's, that's exactly right. And what does that sort of look like, right? Is it fruit of the Spirit and things like that? That's verse 6. That's why I have what we need to be careful with. And this is another difference, too, between some of the real sort of, I call the rigid reform, is this word duty that gets used a lot. We have a Christian duty. We have very little duty as Christian people. It's like saying I have a duty to be kind to my wife. I, I, it's a privilege. It's a, you understand what I'm saying? I understand where that is derived from, but it's no longer a sense of duty. Or maybe it's because duty has a sort of sense of... Um, Obligation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like someone else just said, right? It's culturally connected to the Puritans, for sure. Yes, you're right about that, for sure. Yes, that is a, that is a Puritan word, to be it sure. It doesn't have the same ring to it. Right. Yeah, you probably, and it could possibly be too, uh, Todd, as words tend to do, they tend to take on a different meaning right. over time. That's right. You know? Culturally relevant to the, uh, to the Puritans. The word yeah, duty. The, the word, word duty. Yeah, the Puritans, Puritans like to use the word duty bound quite a bit. We have a sense that duty is uh, we <coughs> do something because we want to avoid the consequences of not doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, again, I can sort of see it a little bit, but I think it's a word that we want to be careful with. So it, it means we can live in holiness and love. We can be shalomites. I thought I made up this word. I was so impressed with myself. <laughs> Apparently it's, it's out there somewhere. Because auto spell didn't correct it. So it's like, oh, okay. So that, so, because I was like, you know, so we're people of shalom, right? There's Israelites, there's Jebusites, there's Hittites, there's all these. We're, we're shalomites. Uh, Tell us what shalom means. Not everybody yeah, so, well, shalom, what does it mean? It means, it's, it's, it's more, right, and it is peace, but... The deep sense of shalom means everything is exactly the way that it should be. It's exactly the way everything is, 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 is functioning, working, related to. Everything is just as it should be. I read a book once. I've shared some of its thoughts with you in the past called uh, Sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in that book, 
Cornelius Plantig, I think, is the one that wrote it. It says that sin is the vandalism of shalom. <laughs> it means we get to be the church. We get to be the church, which is awesome. Again, I want to, talk, I want to touch on this again for a minute. I want to say Gentiles were never under the Mosaic Law because they weren't. So in what way does this part of the letter benefit Gentiles? Uh, to get a picture of what we what, what we would have experienced, what they experienced, and they are free from, and uh-huh. they are thankful that we're free from the same things, although we never were under it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah. I think the bondage of believing that you must stay. Uh, um, how do I want to say? I don't know. Like, <laughs> like <coughs> believing as your forefathers did. Right. Yeah. They they were bound by that because of where they grew up, what they believed, and all of that. And the Gentiles never had that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It basically tells them you don't have to become a Jew. Yeah. And that was the huge. Yes. In Acts 15. Yes. Yeah. Galatians is all about yeah, that. Very important. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and this is a good read. And so Paul's sort of giving good reasons why you don't have to become a Jew. And why Jew? You need to think of what it means to be a Jew differently than Jew did before, right? So, the the Gentiles the Gentiles kind of get the crumbs from the table, though, don't they? Right? The Gentiles are getting the crumbs from the table. This, this teaching that the Jews are receiving, the Gentiles are getting the crumbs from the table off of that, right? Because uh, you know there are some medicines that prevent, and there are some medicines that that cure, and there are some that do both. You can take medicines to both cure and prevent certain diseases certain illnesses you know um, you can use certain things to treat and cure the common cold well this is a good corrective to uh, Christian uh, you know messianic so to speak uh, Jews that are sort of still living under the law subjecting themselves to the law wanting other Gentiles to be under the law and it's good for the for the Christian to hear this the, uh, the Gentile to hear this to know that no you, you don't have to become a Jew for us to be a better Christian so there's two classes of Jews. There's the Jewish Christian, which is really cool, and then there's like the Gentile Christian, kind of like a subset. Okay, that's the mindset in Rome. That's part of the problem in Rome. That's why Paul's writing this letter. There's there's, there's real clashes going on. Paul Paul knows that there's stuff happening in the Roman Church. There's Jewish and Gentile people, and each of them, in their own way, thinks that they have some sort of advantage over or better than. Right? This has been going on in the church forever. It's the human condition at times. So again, some Jews insisting that Christians becomes Jews, which means adherence to the law. And then, of course, the Gentiles would also be learning about Torah, right? Because all Scripture is profitable for training, reproof, and correct, you know, uh, training in righteousness. So uh, this would keep them from misunderstanding the place of the law in the life of the believer as they were learning the only Scriptures they had at the time along with the scriptures they were getting that they may not have known was scripture. Right? You understand? So they're learning sort of the roots of monotheism and they're learning, think about where the Romans came out of, right? Most of them probably came out of, you know, all this polytheism of, of the uh, Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, which, you know, Greece and Rome, they reached a little bit different. Um, but you know the whole pantheon, you know the whole Zeus, Ares, all that stuff. They thought... In fact, they thought Paul at one point and, and uh, Barnabas were Ares and Hermes or something, didn't they? Remember when in Acts? So anyway, so um, this again, this would keep them from, from, from sort of getting lost in that. Then in verse 5 it says, While we were living in the flesh, 
Now, flesh is another one of those words we'll talk about that gets used in a, in a number of different ways. We'll talk about that. Uh, well, I guess just mention it now. The flesh is used four or five different ways in Hebraic thought. Okay? Um, sometimes it refers to the physical body. Sometimes it refers to the fallen condition of humanity. Sometimes it refers to covenant, as when Adam and, and, and Eve became one flesh. And, and there's, there's a few other sort of nuances. The word flesh is used in different ways. Just as justified is used in different ways. We always have to be careful that we know how the word is. You know, context determines meaning, right? So there's a range of meanings for a particular word. Uh, words are like humans. They don't exist in and of themselves. They have very little meaning in and of themselves. Words are like people, aren't they? We, we are what we are, by and large, as a function of how we're related to other people. And that's, that's another reason why we have to be careful to understand the corporate nature of Paul's thinking and writing in Old Testament thought. In that condition, in this case the word flesh is referring to fallen humanity, a fallen condition. Um, the NIV, I think, renders it sinful nature, which can or can't be problematic depending on how you think of that term. Remember, our main problem isn't that we have a particular nature we're born with. We're born, again, as I said, into a covenant with the very enemy of God. We have a relational problem. And yes, our human fallen condition is such that we sin, but we're... Again, think of the environment that you're born into and how much of that you absorb. And, of course, because of Adam, because of sin coming to all of us, death comes to all of us, we're, 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 we're not related to God. We're not influenced by God. We're not, we're not motivated by God outside of Christ. But, I, again, if, if that works for your sinful nature, works for you, that's fine. Just don't think of it as something that's like just biologically passed on or something. Okay? Because then you can begin to start to think in terms of the body is sinful and the spirit is not, and you can run into some of the errors that the early church had to encounter. These little extra jelly beans of stuff that's in there, Todd. Isn't that great? Free candy. That produced fruit of death. It says, in that condition, the law aroused sinful passions. We'll talk a little bit more about that too. That produced fruit for death. Fruit for death versus fruit for God. What does is, what is fruit for death look like? Looks like Seth on the way to work when someone cuts him off in traffic. Right? It, it, it looks like... It looks like it looks like me when I go to plug something in the house and Kim's got like a de- decoration in front of the outlet somewhere. Okay, this is when we were talking about that the other day. When the law, hopefully Kim and I live to be real long and old together. But if God forbid she goes before I do, the law of marriage says that I can't move that stuff out of the way so I can get it. Those plugs comes to an end. Just think of that. I wanted to be here today just so I could share that with you. Fruit for death. It's just our human ugliness, right? All the stuff. Now, and then in verse 6, we see here, we're released from that law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. This is not a reference to the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Dispense with that. Get it out of your head. If you've ever thought of it that way, be rid of it once for all. It does not mean that. Okay? Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4-6. to six. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
uh, we're bearing fruit for, by the Holy Spirit for God. This gets picked up again in chapter 8, right? Because we're not going to hear any more about the Spirit in chapter 7 after verse, uh, verse 12. So, uh, so it's, it's a, the difference between an internal and external thing. It is not like, okay, well, you just want to keep the very letter of the law, but the Spirit of the law doesn't mean that. Two different ministries, two different covenants, couldn't be more different one from the other. Uh, one cannot serve God while under the law. Not because of anything wrong with the law, but because of what's wrong with us. Okay? And verse 6. Um, remember, the law didn't die. We died in Christ. Right? The elect died to the law so that they're free to be married to Christ. Is something they also refer to. Uh, Holland writes, The wedding gift brought to this marriage is the Spirit who will help the church live in newness of life. That's what, that's what it is to live in the new way of the Spirit. The letter again is internal. The written code is inter, I'm sorry, is external. The Spirit is internal. The letter demands. The Spirit supplies. Big difference between the two covenants. One is a covenant of demand. The other is a covenant of supply. Charles Leader, I think, wrote that. Great book, The Law of Christ by Charles Leader. Read that sometime. So those are some differences. That's what we mean by the, the letter versus the Spirit. And then we get to verses 7 through 13. And in a way, this is a parenthetic thought of, Paul, of Paul's. And I think it's parenthetic because he has to talk about the law a little bit and why it's, it's not... You know, he's, he's saying a lot of things here that are going to offend Jews. So he's got to take some time. Because he could... In a way, you could see a, a flow of thought going from, from 7.6 to 8.1. And... I don't want to violate the scripture, but just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. But now we're released from the law, Romans 6, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Romans 8.1 Therefore, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But there's some stuff that has to take place before he can say that. In Romans 8, yes. Could you explain... This is why it becomes so difficult. Is that it's not that Paul is throwing the whole law out, no, not at all. With the baby and the bathwater right. together. Yep. Um, he says in Romans three, and, and really, and, and, and that's why I think it's important in Romans seven to identify what it means. This marital, this new marital relationship mm-hmm. is in relationship to the old marital relationship. Mm-hmm. It was to the law, because he says. <clears throat> Uh, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith mm-hmm. and the uncircumcised through faith is one do we then nullify the law through faith may it never be on the contrary we establish the law yep, yep. So if that's not in focus as you read Romans chapter 7 you may come up with a different definition of Paul, what that marital relationship looks like Paul brings it into laser focus here he, he's going to address it very specifically in these verses 7 through 13 for that very reason I think for that very reason, that again, he's been speaking about the way in the, the law that he could almost be con- called antinomian, which means, what does that mean, by the way? Anti? Without, right, right, against the law. Is the law sin, right? Or, or would the Gentiles then look disparagingly upon the law? Again, Paul, in his, in his brilliance, knows he has to talk about these things. So now he speaks of the goodness of the law and God's overall sort of plan. So he starts out with I, and this is another question that we ask. Is who, well, who is the I in this? Is, is Paul now going to talk about himself for the rest of the chapter? And again, scholars bat this stuff around. 
Is Paul, uh, is, he, is the eye Paul? Is it Adam? Is it Israel? Some helpful comments by people that have studied these things extensively. Doug Moo. The individual Jew had a lively sense of corporate identity with his people, with his people's history. So even if he is talking about himself, it's not outside of the context of what anyone in that situation is. Again, Paul knows very much he's a part of a community and has a history. Um, in, a way, it's, in a way, it's all of them. John Stott said, Paul both telling his own story and universalizing it. His experience, though uniquely his own, is also everybody's. Whether Adam's in the garden, Israel's at the mountain, or for that matter, ours today. And I think that's very true. So we see, first of all, that the law brought about knowledge of sin. That's what Paul says in verse 7. He said, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Whoa, by no means. By no means, okay? And the Jewish audience gives a collective sigh. Like, good, they put down the stones, right? Yet, if it, so, so the law is, 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 is not sin, but I wouldn't have known sin if it weren't for the law. And so the Jews like, well, hey, what? So, and he says, it, but, but when we talk about knowing sin, it's not just a, a knowledge about it. Knowing something often has that connection of deep intimacy with. Okay? A deep intimacy. In, 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 in Paul's case, this was with coveting. Okay? He, was, he, became, he became very familiar. He became intimately uh, uh, sort of with what the concept of coveting is. And it aroused it in him. And again, notice the law is not the problem. That it's sin and Satan are the problem. And he says here that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now that word opportunity is a term for military base. It's the starting point or the base of operations for an expedition. Sin and Satan, just like in the garden, seizing an opportunity because... You know, I just want to share this one thought about this is this is how God's law sets us off in a certain sense, set off the Jews, and how it even can us. Anyone familiar with Confessions by Augustine? Has anyone read that? Okay, not many. Let me just read something here. Augustine is talking about his love of sin just for sin's sake, and he's writing about the time him and his buddy stole some pears from a tree. He says, we carried off a huge load of pears, pears, sorry, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs, after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which thou didst pity even in that bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to thee what it was seeking there when I was being gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil, but the evil itself. No reward for it other than just doing the evil. It was foul and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my error. Not that for which I erred, but for the error itself. A <coughs> depraved soul falling away from security in thee to destruction in itself, seeking nothing from the shameful deed but the shame itself. That's what it is to be intimate with sin. And that's what it was for Paul to be in intimately covetous. He began to covet just for the sake of coveting. Uh, verse 11 sounds very much like the experience of Adam. For sins, and, and even before that, I don't know how Paul could say, I was once alive apart from the law. If he meant just himself. That's why I think he's speaking a little bit more sort of corporately here. Or a little bit more in reference to the, the you know, we, again, we all have our sort of federal representation in Adam. So what can be said about Adam in a sense could likewise be said about us to, to a degree. Verse 11 
Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Same thing happened with Adam in the garden. And he says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. The devil couldn't do anything until Adam got a certain command from God. The devil couldn't do anything. He, he wasn't armed. He didn't have an opportunity. He didn't have a base of operations from which to put a plan into action until God gave a command to Adam. Yes. So could it be understood that a Jew who though technically would be under the law, yet when Paul says that he was alive apart from or without the law, mm-hmm. could he be re- saying that the the true effects of the law hadn't really penetrated. I hadn't been awakened to the realities of the power of the law to convict of sin. I don't know. I mean, he was he was brought up a Jew of Jews. I mean, he was brought up... Well, even if he's speaking no? corporately, I'm not, yeah. I'm not so concerned about individually, yeah. but maybe speaking in a generic way, that a Jew living under the law mm-hmm. wasn't really under conviction until the law came in Holy Spirit power to them bringing before their consciences their guilt and their sin is that how one is made alive I quickened know, I'll be honest with you it's a very difficult passage and it doesn't seem like anybody's content with their own answer to it yes um, I've always looked at this as Paul speaking in the second person mm-hmm. in the sense the law is the second person and how it affects his own conscience mm-hmm. and the corporate mentality is here, certainly, mm-hmm. but that becomes almost the third person. How has the law affected me mm-hmm. in drawing me more into sin rather than mm-hmm. away from it? Yeah. And my relationship and my marriage to it. Yeah. It, I mean, it's hard because obviously he was born in the same condition we all are. He was born separate from God. He was born in a state of fallenness. So it's so it's difficult to sort of get your arms around what he means when he says, you know. Uh, I was once alive apart uh, I was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment unless he's just talking about specifically if he's still on the topic of covetousness because he just mentioned covetousness I would not have known coveting except the law said do not covet and then he goes on to say apart from that law apart from the law sin lies dead I was once alive apart from the law so maybe he meant to coveting in that way maybe it's very very specifically to his experience with coveting well, someone else might be something. This verses right here is really critical to how you receive what he starts to say in verse uh, in verse fifteen mm-hmm. in relationship to the things I wish I want to do, I don't right. do, and, and so on. Uh-huh. In other words, if he's still speaking in this manner in relationship to the conscience being bound by law yeah. as a second person uh-huh. and his experience with it as an unsaved person, it could be. You know, this is one way to as look you at know. It, because you've studied and others have studied, there are many different conclusions people have come to. And even within the Reformed faith, there are stark differences. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk. But one of the things we can definitely, everyone's going to get out of this is the impact that the law had, uh, the law had, the way it was being used, and how we as Christians can be warned and be informed that trying to live according to the law, which we do, is going to cause big problems for us. It's not going to sanctify... No one is sanctified by the law. Maybe that would be a good thing to it. The law does not sanctify anyone. So, you know, there's some real big 10,000 foot principles we can take from this. And we can talk about, okay, it could potentially mean this, could potentially mean that. And there's a certain sense in which, you know, we'll have to come down wherever you individually come down. But I do think that there's a very important component in all of this is be very careful 
the place of the law in your life. Don't make the mistake that the Jews were making. He's been carrying that theme for a long time because the Jews are trying to talk you into making the same mistake that they were making. Not all of them. The big shift is from death to life, from mm -hmm. in the flesh to in the spirit. So the life, and that would be mm -hmm. Romans chapter 8, of course, mm -hmm. right. the life in the spirit. Yes, that's and, huge. That's everything. That's the motive. That's the... That's why I say, that's why I say the sixth verse is the, it's the linchpin on which everything turns. That 7, 6 is the key, the key verse in all of chapter 7, in my view. Because that's the one that says that we no longer... Uh, serve in the new way. We no longer serve in the old way of the written code, but we serve in the new way of the spirit. And that's why, before just diving into the spirit, like he does in chapter eight, Paul's got to deal with this other law stuff in chapter seven. Can I still mention? Don't we have a tendency to want to follow the law and continue to go back to the law anyway? I mean, look at the churches now that are legalist. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. Yeah. Um, huge. You know? Uh, to me, that's what is, is the point here. Because I think that's in that sinful nature. That's the direction we like to go. Because it builds us back up, you know? Well, I think it's unbelief. I mean, we, all, we all struggle with unbelief. Whether we like to admit that or not. When we think that we sort of have to do that, it's either because I'm... Or, or it's, if it's not unbelief, it's, it's fogged belief. <laughs> it's belief in the midst of the fog. Right, um, you, you just don't get to execute as well in the fog, right? That was, I guess, apparently part of the football problem yesterday, right? It was a heavy fog the first half. I was watching a great movie with uh, the family the other day called, I think it was called Tago, where this guy had to go. It's a true, based on a true story. Guy had to go with his sled dogs halfway across like Alaska to get some medicine for kids that were dying of diphtheria, and they had to deal with this tense fog, you know. And it's like as good as this guy was. It's a great family movie. I, it's on Disney. It's a fantastic movie. Um, you know, so I think believers can have that fog of confusion. Right? Um, so it's... And instead of calling it... And this is just passing words. But instead of calling it sinful nature, I like to think that we're people now. We're living in a new domain. But we still have a lot of things that our whole being is acclimated to. It's like someone else that comes to America from another culture, okay? And they try to assimilate. And they try to learn the ways of the culture that they're in. They're still carrying a lot of that old sort of way of life and thinking with them. And we've got to stop and remember, I don't know if we think deeply enough about this sometime, how connected our material and immaterial selves are, what goes on in the brain, what goes on in the body. I talk about this from time to time, as you know. All that stuff that goes on. Why do we take pleasure in things we take pleasure in? Um, we have biology in our brain that is responsible for feelings of pleasure that we have. So much about us has... That's why we, we're going to get a whole new being when we're resurrected. Not just resurrection bodies. We're going to get a whole new resurrected being. Spiritual bodies. Bodies that are fit for the new spirit that sort of we're going to have in, in all that. So there's so much. But we are born again people. We're in the kingdom of God. I don't even like to speak of myself as having a sinful nature. Um, I sin. <laughs> That's not my nature. I act contrary to my nature when I sin now. But, again, it might just be passing words. right? I just don't want us to think that, A, we have to be stuck in that, or that we don't have the tools to sort of work around it. How was, again, how was Paul alive apart from the law? That, that sounds so idamic to me. But sin deceives, Right? He says, I was deceived. And Hebrews 3, 12-13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day while it is called today that none of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? Sin deceives. And we know the wages of sin is death. And so Paul goes on and he says the law is holy and the commandment is good. I like what Doug Moose said about the law at one point. He said the law, particularly the Decalogue, is a transcript of God's character. I like that. It's a transcript of God's character. It's a good thing. But Paul says, well, how does that, did that which is good then bring about death to me? So he saw in the laws, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, it's righteous, it's good. Okay? How can it be good if death resulted? Again, because the problem is sin and not the law. Paul is giving sort of spiritual value here to the Jews who are getting very anxious and a little bit panicked now about some of the stuff Paul has been saying about the law. It produces death. It increases the transgression. It sort of makes us want to sin more. It excites our sinful passions. It condemns. It, 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 it curses. On and on and on. But he's teaching both Jews and Gentiles the real beauty of the law. His thought says, Indeed, the extreme sinfulness of sin is seen precisely in the way it exploits a good thing, the law, for an evil purpose, death. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's precisely what the serpent of Eden did. Took a good thing, God's instruction, God's careful instruction, and, and he turned it into an evil purpose. And that's why it was necessary for sin to be shown to be sin. Right? And through the commandment, sinful beyond measure. Why? Why is it necessary that sin be seen as exceedingly sinful? I think of Romans one thirty two, where it says that people that do these things know they're deserving of death. So God's holiness, and particularly as we see His holiness sort of talked about in the law, it just becomes overwhelmingly super evident. You can't resist the evidence anymore. Okay? Yes? <clears throat> the theology, when it meets the reality of Christ's life, when He says this statement in uh, John 15, mm-hmm. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Mm, interesting. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Yeah. So the, fir- the fir- perfect law giver, mm-hmm. the righteousness of God from heaven, being bore witness yeah. by the law and the prophets, yeah. has now done something even greater than the law to expose sin. Yeah. I'm here. I'm living it. Yep. You are now dead in sin to the greatest degree in terms of observing it. They, they missed what the law was... See, they missed Jesus because they missed the law in the first place. That's why he said, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me. Because he wrote of me. So they missed the entire purpose for what Moses gave them the Torah in the first place. If they hadn't, they would have seen it. Um, also, why, why is it necessary that it be seen as exceedingly sinful so that we would know that the law cannot rescue? It can only diagnose and kill. It does it to magnify the grace of God in rescuing us. To show us just what a rescue was needed. I'll close with this from Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody in here not read Pilgrim's Progress? It's okay if you haven't. Or a book. Um, so Faithful is talking to Christian, and Faithful just had this encounter with a guy, okay? And he's saying, so Faithful is talking to Christian, he says, But good brother, hear me out. So soon as the man overtook me, it was but a word and a blow, for he knocked me and laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him, Wherefore he served me so? He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backwards. So I laid his foot as dead as before. So when I came to myself again, I cried out, Mercy! But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. He had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by and bid him forbear. Christian says, Who is that that bid him forbear? Faithful says, I did not know him at first, but as he went by... 
I perceived the holes in his hand and in his side. Then I concluded it was our Lord. So I went up the hill. And Christian says, That man that overtook you was Moses. He spareth none. Neither knoweth he how to show mercy to those that transgress the law. And that's what Paul is sort of getting at. And Bunyan did a great job of sort of capturing that. So next week we'll look at 13 through the rest of the chapter and see what's going on with this whole... or try to see what's going on with this whole thing of what I do, what I don't want, all that stuff. What's, what's going on with all that? And what can we take away from it even if sort of you have a position on it that you're sort of, sort of committed to? You heard. I don't think I'm going to bring anything new to it. There's nothing new under the sun in a sense. Uh, but having heard sort of the different arguments for and against, what are some of the things that... And God in His grace seems to allow us to learn from considerable differences, uh, which is good. So there's definitely something to be had as we go through all this and, 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 uh, and wrap it all up and out. Um, Denise, would you pray for us? Are we be done?